Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Thanks for your support on Patreon, Mike Sanders. During the Siege of La Rochelle in 1628, Mike Sanders commanded the final charge which took the city as Cardinal Richelieu looked on with approval. This is a complete lie. Mike Sanders didn't do any of this, but he is a wonderful patron, and if you would like to be a patron too and have me shout you out on the podcast and lie about you, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. More on that later, but for now, enjoy episode 24 of the 30 Years War. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the Thirty Years' War. When diplomacy fails, that is. My name is Zach Twomley, and you're very, very welcome. I hope you're doing well, and I hope you're keeping safe, and I hope you're ready to get on with this. It's a pretty detailed episode, and it's quite a long one, too. We're continuing the story today of Frederick V and his never-ending quest for allies, as he sought to resurrect the struggle against his nemesis, Emperor Ferdinand II. Ferdinand had all the advantages. He had the richer, more powerful allies, and he also seemed to possess the moral advantage, because many princes in the empire seemed to simply wish that Frederick would swallow his pride and go away and let everyone live in peace. How great and terrible would Frederick's pride be, it was suggested, if it prevented him from making peace at this time and enabled the conflict to escalate beyond its mostly imperial confines. In this episode, we told the bells of Frederick's cause as we examine how each of his plucky allies were defeated in detail and in isolation, spoiler, compounding the sense of anxiety for those allies and everyone associated with them and making several other powers feel a great deal more unsafe than they did before. Much would depend on the Emperor's treatment of his foes, yet Ferdinand showed himself utterly merciless when it suited him and in his backyard in Bohemia, the Emperor set to work recasting this once distinguished and unique kingdom, into just another Habsburg satellite. It remained to be seen if all would go quietly, or if Ferdinand would provoke the conflict that he claimed to fear. Either way, in this episode we examine the pace of the war, as the Bohemian Revolt and its consequences appeared finally, after three tries, to run out of steam. Without any further ado, I'll now take you to the summer of 1621. We are going to look at the summer of 1621, but first I have a quote from the English historian Sir Adolphus William Ward, who wrote in 1869 on the aftermath of the Bohemian Revolt, saying the following. 
There could be no doubt as to the fate in store for the vanquished kingdom, and to this day she bears the traces of her reconciliation to the dominion and the faith of the House of Austria. Yet I cannot agree with one historian's view that the Bohemians are to be charged with the responsibility of their country's sufferings. It has been sagaciously observed by the present Emperor of the French, that is, Napoleon III in 1869, that men are not justified in resorting to unlawful means when lawful will better suit the purpose. The Bohemians had before them the choice between submitting to Ferdinand and rescinding his election to their throne. They chose the latter alternative, and therein they seem to have made no fond calculation. True, they played their venturous game badly, but they could hardly have reckoned on so much weakness in Frederick, so much tergiversation in James, so much backwardness in the Dutch, and so much cowardice in the Evangelical Union. Nor could they have anticipated so unparalleled, I feel almost inclined to say, so heroic, a determination in their opponent. Sometimes I think it's interesting to see what historians 150 years ago thought about the Thirty Years' War. I also find that because they're trying to be less politically correct, and oftentimes their biases are pretty much fully on show, their descriptions can be quite unique and lead us down some interesting paths. But as far as heroism goes, there was very little heroism left in Bohemia by 1621. After over a decade of resistance to Habsburg inroads, the rebels that remained in Prague had exhausted their reserves as well as their deposed king's patience. Ferdinand forbade any residents from leaving the kingdom, which seemed to indicate that he was going to repair the wretched country and restore it to its old position with the help of those recalcitrant citizens. The rebels who had been unable to escape could only hope that Ferdinand would need them for this task, but they were to be wholly disappointed. Ferdinand aimed at nothing less than the complete reshaping of Bohemia in the Habsburg image, and this task began with removing the vestiges of opposition to his regime, pulling out the weeds which had choked proper Bohemian society, as he saw it. Elective monarchy was abolished in Bohemia. Henceforth, the country was to be little more than an appendage of the Habsburg hereditary lands, and Bohemian kings were to be Habsburgs and nothing else. That was not all. Ferdinand displayed his other mission when he received the original copy of the Letter of Majesty, that document which had been drafted in 1609, and which had entitled the rebels of Bohemia to demand so much from their kings and act against them if it seemed in their interests. It was said that Ferdinand personally took to this document with a knife, carving it up and, effectively, killing it, in a physical and in a metaphorical sense as well. The message was clear. If there had been doubts before about Ferdinand's sincerity when he had sworn to uphold the letter's tenets, now there was only fear. Bohemia was flooded with Jesuits, Catholics were empowered, and religious difference was squeezed out. On the night of the 20th of February 1621, all known rebels in Prague were arrested and confined to Prague's dungeons to await sentencing. Among these prisoners were moderates as well as the irredeemable rebels. Men like Andreas Schlick, who had urged moderation from the very beginning, but had been overruled by the likes of Count Thurn, but Thurn had since fled the country. Ferdinand's vengeance was every bit as fearsome as Frederick claimed it would be. Determined once and for all to extirpate heresy and resistance from this important country, the emperor had the accused put on trial, with the sentences reaching Vienna at the end of May and awaiting Ferdinand's signature. The arrested individuals had been tried by a special commission, and there was no chance to appeal. More than 40 individuals were given harsh sentences, ranging from life imprisonment to execution, and with Ferdinand's approval coming shortly after, 
it was now the task of the gallows to carry out the deed. Contrary to the fears of some in Prague, no rescue mission was launched on the day of execution on the 21st of June. Symbolically, horsemen from Saxony patrolled Prague just in case, but the city, as much as the country, was plainly beaten. This had been the third and most terrible Bohemian revolt by far, but it seemed certain now that it would be the last. Among the heads mounted on pikes on the Charles Bridge was the right hand of Count Schlick, a grisly reminder of what happened to those that declared oaths against the Emperor and who fought for his downfall. In his mission to destroy opposition and bring Bohemia securely into the Habsburg fold, Ferdinand effectively destroyed Bohemia's identity and history. Religion and rebels were not the only concerns of the Habsburgs, though. One of the reasons why the recreation of Bohemia proved so effective and enduring was due to the Habsburgs' effective mobilisation of arguably the most important commodity that was then available to them, land. In his History of the Habsburg Family, Richard Bassett wrote that As the conflict in Bohemia progressed through the 1620s, it provided a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for a radical reorganisation of wealth and a comprehensive redrawing of the aristocracy. The revolt of the Bohemian nobles brought the House of Habsburg the power of redistribution of a vast and hitherto unprecedented scale. It is estimated that some 670 estates changed hands as vast tracts of Bohemian territory were stripped from the rebels and given to 200 adventurers and officers prepared to embrace the Catholic faith. The appropriation of so much land enabled the Habsburgs to assume a critically important position in Bohemian society. Just as they were removing the undesirable elements, they were also able to pose as a fount of patronage to those that could promise them loyalty. Underneath this apparently ideal strategy, though, chronic problems were created. When the land confiscations had begun, the emperor felt it necessary to raise some money quickly by selling off the land for 30 million florins. To aid the potential buyers to make this purchase, Ferdinand issued a license to a consortium of buyers to establish a mint, which then issued debased currency and created something of a money divide in Bohemia, as citizens, who were wise to these tactics, distinguished between the old, heavy, silver coins, that were good, and the new debased coins, which were not good, even though distinguishing between coins in this way was supposed to be illegal. Since not all citizens did distinguish between the coins, though, and since 42 million florins worth of coins were minted between 1621 to 22, in the process, making 12 times as many coins from the old amount of silver that would normally have been used, the aforementioned consortium became very rich indeed, even if their coins were not actually as worthy as they used to be. These new men in Bohemia were Catholic loyalists of the Habsburgs, and recognised that great profit could be enjoyed by gobbling up as many of the confiscated estates as possible and at knockdown prices. With the influx of debased coins into their pockets, these men were technically rich, and with the purchase of so many estates, they became rich in land as well as in pocket. Of course, as you expert economists will know, the unnatural suddenness of so many coins entering circulation backfired in the short and long term, once the coin-heavy men made enough purchases, they found that their coins were accepted less and less often and wouldn't be valued as highly. 
the debasement of Bohemia's currency, compounded the misery in society and religion, and by 1623, as many as 120,000 people were said to have fled the country in spite of Ferdinand's efforts. On another level, between 1616 to 1650, the population of Bohemia fell by 50%, and in Moravia, modern-day Slovakia, 30%. To Ferdinand, it was enough that those who remained became loyal Catholic subjects, because that meant that their descendants would become the same. But it would not be hyperbole to state that Bohemia was never the same again after this experience. In times of crisis, certain individuals will always find the opportunity to profit, and arguably the most famous individual to profit from all of these misfortunes in Bohemia was a man who you'll be hearing a lot about during this series, Albrecht Wenzel Eusebius von Wallenstein. A Catholic Bohemian nobleman who had taken advantage early of the opportunities inherent in the new regime. In quick time, Wallenstein became one of the largest landowners in Bohemia, and consequently one of the richest individuals in the country. Wallenstein had come into a small fortune after his elderly wife died in 1614, but from there his fortunes only snowballed. Of the 670 estates made available by the Habsburg victory, Wallenstein was able to purchase more than 70 of him for himself, to co-opt several others, and all with the use of the debased currency that a few people wished to touch. Indeed, the debased currency problem was actually spreading to other neighbouring states, and it has been identified by one historian as a contributing factor towards the economic crisis of the time. To Wallenstein, though, this was just business, and very good business at that. In time, Wallenstein was to become the emperor's personal generalissimo, while he would also use the immense profits wrested from his estates to loan Ferdinand considerable sums of money. Between 1622-24, Wallenstein acquired the Duchy of Friedland in northern Bohemia, a lucrative, compact duchy which encompassed 100 square miles and which yielded Wallenstein the equivalent of £70,000 a year. This sum, for the record, was four times the amount of money which King James could expect to receive from Scotland at the time. These fortunes, remarked the historian Charles Kindleberger, enabled Wallenstein to finance his own army in Thirty Years' War battles at a time when other armies had to rely on booty just to feed their troops. The relationship between needy emperor and ambitious subject was soon to produce abundant fruit, as Wallenstein commanded, paid for, and supplied Ferdinand's personal army by 1626, in return for the patronage of his emperor and the privileges which he could scarcely have imagined. All of these combined to make Wallenstein at one point the most powerful potentate in the Holy Roman Empire, second only to the emperor himself. As matters stood in 1621 though, there could be no indication that Ferdinand's subject would so distinguish himself. Instead, Ferdinand was tasked with ensuring the loyalty of that other critical ally of his, Maximilian of Bavaria. While Ferdinand worked at ensuring his triumph, Frederick worked to undermine it. By the end of 1621, he could still point to some allies in the field, with arguably the most important being Ernst of Mansfeld. In late October 1621, Mansfeld marched with his army of some 22,000 men out of the Upper Palatinate in Central Europe and back towards the Lower Palatinate along the Rhine, where the Spanish had put down some routes. Mansfeld's men were perpetually short of pay and as a result perpetually on the verge of mutiny, 
but the grizzled commander kept his men together long enough to menace the Spanish along the Rhine. Count Tilly, commander of the Catholic League forces, moved to capitalise on Mansfeld's absence in the Upper Palatinate, and the Upper Palatinate was then effectively occupied in the Duke of Bavaria's name. If Christian of Brunswick and George Friedrich of Baden-Durlach, two of Frederick's other allies, managed to rendezvous with Mansfeld along the Rhine, then Frederick would enjoy a force of roughly 40,000 close to his homeland. The difficulty for these three armies was reaching the Rhine River before they were intercepted, but an important event outside of the military sphere occurred, which had the potential to be a propaganda coup for the Palatine cause. By August 1621, Maximilian of Bavaria was anxious to receive the compensation for his services, which the emperor had promised. The first of these was the transferal of the Upper Palatinate to his domains, and it was a work in progress, with Count Tilly on the case as we saw, occupying the region with his army. The second of these was the transferal of Frederick's electoral title to the Bavarian Duke. Ferdinand was still dependent enough on Bavaria at this stage in the conflict that he felt beholden to the promises he had made. To delay too long might cause still more disastrous problems. Bethlen Gabor was still at large in the east in spite of several peace efforts and truces which had been signed in the past, and Ernst of Mansfeld remained a threat, albeit a brittle one, to the Spanish on the Rhine, not to mention the other minor commanders who had declared for Frederick. As an English observer noted at the time, it may be well judged that this is not a fit season for the Emperor to give the Duke of Bavaria a pure negative. Indeed, the Emperor sent couriers to Brussels, Madrid, Dresden and other locations declaring that the issue of Maximilian's ascension from Duke to Elector would be raised and hopefully solved at the next Imperial Diet, pending Saxon and Spanish approval. While en route to his destination, though, one of these couriers, carrying the damning instructions, was captured by Mansfeld. Ferdinand's intentions had, before, only been the subject of rumour, and they hadn't been confirmed. But this discovery of the correspondence and the confirmation that Ferdinand was indeed going to strip Frederick of his titles and give them to the Bavarian Duke changed all that. Mansfeld had in his hands a letter written by Ferdinand himself to Balthazar de Zaniga, the Spanish favourite in Madrid, to the effect that he had verbally promised Frederick's electorate to Maximilian, and that very soon it would be time to fulfil the pledge. At one point during this damning letter, Ferdinand had written, It is not necessary to trust the King of Great Britain, as much as he is of the religion, and that one can neither remedy nor make secure these affairs, only if the religion called Calvinism be totally exterminated, when Frederick learned of this find, he saw it for what it was, a great opportunity to harness the reluctance of some Germans and the hostility of others by exposing Ferdinand's true intentions. God, Frederick wrote, the director of all things and the protector of the innocent has miraculously discovered the source and the most secret counsels, which, as Frederick saw it, seemed to confirm all that he had loudly proclaimed before, that the emperor was not to be trusted and that unconstitutional acts did not concern the emperor when he was trying to get his way. Now the emperor's behaviour made sense. Frederick had been placed under the imperial ban not because this was legally justified, but because it had made the intended transfer of land and titles easier for Maximilian and more palatable. 
Indeed, the transfer of the electorate from Frederick to Maximilian had been but one topic for discussion in this damning cache of correspondence. Also within it was the Habsburg proposals for recreating their rule in the empire under papal decree to centralise their rule in Germany and to extirpate heresy wherever possible. Frederick instructed his court preacher to publish the findings, and this was done under the title The Spanish Chancery, a 178-page document which the Habsburgs roundly condemned as a fake, but which has since been validated by historians. The contents of these letters and the resulting surge in Palatine pamphlet activity which followed may well have emboldened Frederick to take a personal role in the campaigning season of 1622. In line with this, on the 22nd of April 1622, Frederick left The Hague to meet with Mansfeld in the Lower Palatinate. Moving along the Rhine with Mansfeld's army, Frederick was able to experience this form of positional warfare firsthand. Mansfeld's aim remained to combine his force with Christian of Brunswick and George Friedrich of Baden-Durlach, with the Elector Palatine heading this polyglot army in wake of the revelations on the Emperor's ignoble intentions he would cut a dashing, brave and perhaps even appealing figure for other Protestant Germans and foreign potentates alike. Combined with the impact another Transylvanian invasion would have on Viennese security and Ferdinand's own position, Frederick certainly had the potential to turn the tables on the Emperor. What he needed most of all, though, was some kind of military victory. Unfortunately for the dispossessed Elector Palatine, Frederick's allies lacked the professionalism and polish of his adversaries. During a skirmish, Mansfeld managed to push back the Spanish commander, Cordoba, in late April, but he proved unable to prevent the two Habsburg allies from combining their armies. In the Battle of Wimpfen on the 6th of May 1622, George Friedrich of Baden-Durlach was cut off and defeated, which effectively eliminated him from the race. Mansfeld and Christian of Brunswick remained, but not for long. With their combined army, the Habsburgs managed to intercept Christian of Brunswick while he was trying to cross the Rhine at a bridgehead called Hotcht. At this encounter on the 20th of June 1622, Christian lost 2,000 men, three of his cannon and a portion of his reputation, but he retained his treasury and the bulk of his army, and he sped in double time to meet with Mansfeld and Frederick by the end of June. By this stage, Frederick had travelled for only two months with his commander, but two months was more than enough for him. He had arrived in his homeland in high spirits. I will have nothing to do with the suspension of arms, Frederick had originally said to Mansfeld, for that would be my ruin. I must either have a good peace or a good war. While he believed that his enemies would never have come to the peace table unless he had this good war, the emperor simply was not trustworthy, and the exposing of his unconstitutional promises, not to mention his sectarian intentions, left Frederick to feel that he had no choice other than to continue the war against the Emperor. Unfortunately, while the campaigning season of 1622 had not been full of disappointments, and he had learned much about the reality of battle, these lessons hadn't provided him with the results he had hoped for. There ought to be some difference between friend and enemy. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks sleep number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Frederick had lamented in the summer of 1622, but these people ruin both alike. I think these are men who are possessed by the devil and who take pleasure in setting fire to everything. I shall be very glad to leave them. Bear in mind, Frederick was talking about his army, more specifically Mansfeld's army, in this rant. Indeed, true to his word on the 13th of July, 1622, Frederick made the decision to release both Ernst of Mansfeld and Christian of Brunswick from his service and he returned to his uncle in France, in Sedan. It appeared that the Palatine cause had been dealt a crippling blow. In actual fact, Frederick's rationale had been mostly sound. In months past, successive offers of mediation and the coordination of a conference in Brussels to discuss the Palatine matter had been proposed by King James, but Frederick had refused to countenance these suggestions each time. Some proposals were especially ludicrous and impossible for Frederick to accept, such as the proposal originating in Spain that Frederick send his firstborn son to Vienna to be raised a Catholic and married to a Habsburg. When he came of age, this child of the Habsburg court would then be permitted to inherit his father's title. There was no question of Frederick sending his son to Vienna as a hostage, nor was it possible for him to renounce his own title until his son came of age. The idea was unlikely to get even to the planning stage once Frederick learned of it, but it did seem that by the summer of 1622, King James's repeated overtures were starting to wear Frederick down. It was from a sincere desire to get away from Mansfeld's unruly soldiery, which he rightly feared would have their worst excesses attributed to him, that Frederick elected to leave Mansfeld and Christian of Brunswick and release them from his service. In addition, the other important motive was the fact that James had asked Frederick several times for a gesture of goodwill, a sign which the British king could use to demonstrate his son-in-law's genuine desire for peace. Frederick had refused to do this in the past because it would have meant trusting the enemy to refrain from attacking while he stood back, but in midsummer, he evidently had decided to trust in James's ability to make them keep their word. May God touch the king's heart. Certainly I do everything to content him, but I obtain so little with it, Frederick had lamented on his father-in-law. As per James's instructions, 
Frederick empowered an ambassador to act in his name in the upcoming conference in Brussels while he signed his name in the style of a disinherited prince, deprived of his electorate rather than the proud elector palatine which he'd always striven to represent. It was at least possible that Frederick was warming to the idea of peace. You shouldn't feel too bad for those people that Frederick had released from his service, though. Mansfeld and Christian of Brunswick, though freed from Frederick's service, were not about to embrace new career opportunities. Instead, they resolved to stick together and march towards the next available theatre of war where they could better offer their services, the Netherlands. Before they got there, though, the two commanders seemed content to follow their old paymaster to Sedan. This created an awkward situation. Frederick was not especially happy to see them. Mansfeld and Christian of Brunswick, though they were supposed to be working together, didn't really like each other, and they disagreed on where their combined forces should precisely be used. Some of Christian's cavalry mutinied, and when it was learned that this had roused some Huguenots nearby to revolt, Frederick feared that King Louis XIII of France would blame him, and that King James would be unable to intercede on his behalf. I'm very embarrassed here because no matter what one does, there is no sympathy, Frederick wrote to his wife. Later, when Frederick had to intervene to prevent Mansfeld and Christian engaging in a duel, he would remark to Elizabeth that God granted me a great favour in my not being associated with this army anymore. If God does not extend his hand to them, we will see a bad end to this army. I confess that I would have rather preferred that the army had taken another resolution to serve the Huguenot churches of France, and I believe that this could have been better for my affairs, but the soldiers did not want to. Mercifully for Frederick, his most important ally in the Dutch Republic came to his rescue and commissioned the two commanders to serve against the Spanish. In late August 1622, they left Sedan, with Frederick's uncle, the Duke of Bouillon, even providing them with ten cannons to incentivize their prompt exit. So finally, Frederick was free from the association with such reckless men, but he was given dire news shortly thereafter. The English ambassador had written home to James about the Habsburgs' refusal to keep the peace in the Palatinate, and instead, Cossack and Croatian auxiliaries had plundered the Palatinate horribly. The devastation had been led by the emperor's brother, that perennial adventurer, Archduke Leopold. Furious, though he certainly was at this violation of the peace, Frederick was to learn later in the summer that Bethlehem Gabor had also been pacified. After so many failed truces, Emperor Ferdinand sought a conclusive deal with the restless Transylvanian prince that would take him permanently out of the Palatine equation. As early as January 1622, Ferdinand signed a treaty with Bethlehem Gabor, whereby Bethlehem renounced his claims on the throne of Hungary and returned the Hungarian crown jewels in return for grants of land, money and titles from the emperor. Through this treaty, Bethlehem Gabor, the Transylvanian prince, became an imperial prince. At this news, the final embers of resistance in Silesia also burnt themselves out, tying up more loose ends and providing the emperor with a stable frontier at long last. As he waited in Sedan for more news, short of money and friends, Frederick's palatine capital at Heidelberg surrendered at long last on the 19th of September 1622, and before long, its distinguished university had shut its doors, while its Calvinist churches were forcibly closed. Count Tilly, commander of the Catholic League forces, 
permitted the Heidelberg garrison to march out with full honours, but the city was not spared the unfortunately familiar treatment of plunder and destruction. Mannheim, another important Palatine settlement, which boasted an English garrison commander, was abandoned by that same commander when he learned of Heidelberg's fall. There seemed no point in sticking around if the capital couldn't even hold out after all. Of all Frederick's patrimonial lands, all that remained to him by the end of 1622 was the fortress of Frankenthal, which itself was held by 2,000 English soldiers, the only notable military contribution which King James made to his son-in-law's cause. Frederick was despondent at this news. He withdrew into his rooms in Sedan and thought only of returning to see Elizabeth in The Hague once again. The conquest of the Palatinate proceeded apace, as he wrote in mid-September 1622, God may well send me afflictions, and it is not the least thing to be far for so long a time from my dear heart, whose portrait I carry so very carefully. May it please God to give us a little corner of the world, to live there happily together. It is all the good fortune that I wish. Unsurprisingly, having made his plans years before, Emperor Ferdinand was unable to grant Frederick any restoration of his lands or any corner of the world to live in happily with his wife. The very fear that the Emperor might have to do this had compelled Maximilian of Bavaria to send several urgent letters over the early 1620s, but Emperor Ferdinand did not want a settled peace as badly as he wanted to see his allies triumphant and his own ambitions fulfilled. For this to happen, any approaches in diplomacy would have to be met with impossible requests until the Palatine cause had so withered and withdrawn that no powers would possibly be able to justify supporting it. In a similar vein to Frederick, Emperor Ferdinand believed that the Palatine cause could only be defeated and Frederick only sufficiently marginalised once his allies were all destroyed in detail. After a series of defeats for Frederick, Ferdinand sought to hasten this process by moving ahead with the plan of transferring the Palatine electorate to Maximilian of Bavaria. We're going to look at that transferal ceremony in a bit, history friends, but before we do, I want to remind you of something very special and important. Yes, I know it's not Black Friday anymore. If you're listening to this when it comes out on Wednesday, then Black Friday has long since passed. But in the theme of trying to milk such imaginary holidays for all they're worth, I decided to keep a special offer going on the Patreon feed. And for another few days, basically until Friday, you'll be able to get 16% off all annual memberships on Patreon if you sign up now for the year. That is, two months for free or ten months for the price of 12. There's so many different ways you can spin this. But in any case, it's a great deal. And by signing up for an annual membership, you're basically giving me a sudden, solid injection of funds that I can then send to Trinity and continue to pay for my PhD. And I know you're probably feeling like we're always doing these fundraising things, but the sad reality nowadays is that these things cost a lot of money, and I have been completely overwhelmed and bowled over by your guys' generosity in the past, and I don't like asking for money, but at the same time, there's absolutely no onus on you to do this. Listening to this show and telling people about it is more than enough support. If you want to do monetary support, and if you want to get some perks in return, such as merchandise, such as listening to Poland is not yet lost, then you now have an ideal opportunity to do so. And speaking of merchandise, I should let you all know that our Tee Public store has got a sale on in line with Black Friday, and you can get our t-shirts for the very low price of €11, which in 
dollar terms is I think about $13. I'm not entirely sure. But they're very cheap at the moment, so if you're looking for early Christmas presents for people and you know that they just want Bismarck's face on something, then that's where to go. The link is in the description of this episode as always. And any purchases I get commissioned from, and I also get to know that TeePublic are fulfilling the order, and I don't have to, which is very nice indeed. Thanks so much for your support, guys. And thanks as well for those of you that signed up on Patreon in the last little while. It's been so encouraging and so supportive to have you guys behind me as I enter into, well, nearly the halfway point of the PhD, believe it or not. It'll be halfway by the summer of 2021. So, yeah, time has flied by and we're doing some great work. And I can't wait to share it all with you when the time is right. But until then, we'll keep churning out this stuff. And I know you'll be there on the other end of this microphone to listen in. All right, now let's get back to the next part of this episode. Considering all the years of talk and planning when it came to transferring Frederick's title to the Duke of Bavaria, it was in an anticlimactic and somewhat awkward ceremony on the 25th of February 1623 that Maximilian, Duke of Bavaria, became, according to the law set down by the emperor and those present, the Elector of Bavaria. This was a historic moment, as while matters were to be reorganised in 1648, from 1623 onwards, Bavaria was never to lose its electoral title, leaving a balance of eight electors in the Holy Roman Empire. A number which was to increase to nine with the addition of the Hanoverian elector before the end of the 17th century. Emperor Ferdinand achieved this sleight of hand by alluding to the concessions he had already made. Saxony had received Lusatia, Brandenburg had been granted extensive rights over East Prussia by the King of Poland, Sigismund III, who was Ferdinand's brother-in-law, and this was a timely settlement indeed. The Catholic scruples were salved by the capable papal diplomacy, which emphasised the balance in the Electoral College, which was now firmly skewed in favour of Catholics. Once again, Ferdinand had violated the imperial constitution, and once again, he had gotten away with it. Ferdinand had taken a firm step not only against Frederick, but also against the position of political Protestantism within Germany. With Saxony and Brandenburg quiescent, and five Catholic votes now present, there was no chance either for a Protestant Holy Roman Emperor to emerge, or for Frederick's situation to be reversed through any imperial body. That said, Ferdinand had refrained from calling such bodies together during the last several years, and he had relied for the most part on bribes and private agreements. It was a bitter lesson of Frederick's, and arguably one which he never truly learned, that the imperial constitution and the traditions it implied were only as strong as the leading forces of the Holy Roman Empire, so long as it suited those in power to ignore its regulations, and so long as those who might normally oppose these violations had been paid off, Frederick's appeals to the unconstitutionality of the emperor's actions fell on uneasy but still largely deaf ears. And we shouldn't doubt Emperor Ferdinand's intentions. Having effectively won the battle against Frederick by early 1623, even if he hadn't won the war, he was confident in his position, and with Spanish and Bavarian monies and men to effect his goal, he probably felt as strong as he was ever going to be. With the Palatine threat vanished, basically, the most potent challenge to the Catholic Habsburg supremacy had vanished with it. 
Frederick was an outlaw, an illegitimate contender, and any supporters of his had long since been given good reason to reconsider their position. The lower Palatinate along the Rhine was occupied by Spain, and the upper Palatinate in Central Europe was occupied by Bavaria. Frederick's title was taken from him, his armies had been excused and were fighting in the Dutch War, and the few allies he did have, in England for instance, had failed him time and time again. Emperor Ferdinand would have cause to remark, Disobedience, lawlessness and insurrection went always hand in hand with Protestantism. Every privilege which has been conceded to the states by himself, Matthias, and his predecessor had had no other effect than to raise these Protestant demands. All the measures of the heretics were aimed against the imperial authority. Step by step, they had advanced from defiance to defiance up to this last aggression. In a short time, they would assail all that remained to be assailed, in the person of the emperor. In arms alone was there any safety against such an enemy. Peace and subordination could be only established upon the ruins of their dangerous privileges. Security for the Catholic belief was only to be found in the total destruction of this sect. Uncertain, it was true, might be the event of the war, but inevitable was the ruin if such a war was not allowed to take place. The confiscation of the lands of the rebels would richly indemnify them for its expenses, while the terror of punishment would teach the other states the wisdom of a prompt obedience in the future. From such an uncompromising mind as Ferdinand's, we might ask whether genuine efforts of peace were ever going to come. Once Frederick had taken that inflammatory step of accepting the Bohemian crown in late 1619, the emperor was apparently absolved from any notions of foul play, and he was instead justified in whatever actions he took. Yet this begs the question, arguably inconsequential by this point, of who exactly was responsible for the escalation of the Bohemian revolt into the Bohemian War between Frederick and Ferdinand and later the Thirty Years' War. Was it the Elector Palatine who unwisely accepted the Bohemian crown, knowing or at least suspecting what would follow? Or was it Emperor Ferdinand, the uncompromising militant Catholic zealot who refused to permit any kind of peace other than one which saw his enemy surrender unconditionally? In Geoffrey Parker's mind, it was the Emperor who was responsible for the escalation of the conflict since Emperor Ferdinand quickly became less interested in compromise and more interested in total triumph, especially once he got a taste of that triumph. Parker wrote that, given the implacable nature of the Habsburgs' demands and the magnitude of Frederick's defeat, the dispossessed Winter King had nothing to lose by continued resistance. The terms for Frederick's peace were simply too harsh for him or for any self-respecting prince of the empire to accept, and these terms were only to get more severe as the years progressed. On the other hand, when we look at Geoffrey Parker's opinion, it's often useful to look at Peter H. Wilson's opinion, who tends to go with the Habsburg point of view more often than not. And Peter H. Wilson in this case judged Frederick harshly when he wrote on the Elector Palatine's character to the effect that Peace foundered on Frederick's refusal to compromise. His defiance encouraged others to remain in the field But was Frederick truly to blame for the escalation of the war? The historian Sheila C. Ogilvie is more objective when she writes, The rebellion became a civil war because both Emperor Ferdinand and Frederick V of the Palatinate appealed to institutions and legitimacy outside the territorial state of Bohemia, although within the composite state of the empire. 
The imperial constitution was invoked as a justification by all participants, by Emperor Ferdinand as a territorial lord, claiming the right to impose physical and confessional regulation, by the rebellious bohemian nobility, claiming protection against Ferdinand's expansionist ambitions as territorial lord, and by Protestant electors and German princes, claiming protection against Ferdinand's expansionist aims as emperor, particularly his claims to interfere within territorial affairs in matters of religion and internal revolt. With the swing vote and the electoral college at stake, no major German state could afford to remain on the sidelines. It's sometimes convenient for historians, or useful for those that read their historical accounts, to distinguish between the different periods of the Thirty Years' War, and to view different actors as responsible for the transitions between these periods. Yet, the conflict in the early 1620s was very difficult to classify. It involved German potentates of various size and importance, and compelled external powers to exert varying degrees of effort in the name of their allies, whether this was James's unsuccessful diplomatic campaign, Bethlehem Gabor's repeated invasions from Hungary, or the King of Poland's timely approaches. The Thirty Years' War was still in its early phase when Maximilian was recast as the Elector of Bavaria in spring 1623, but it was impossible to mistake the fact that certain steps were being taken, steps which could not be retraced, and which had the danger to inflame passions and tensions rather than solve them. At the centre of these anxieties could be found the cornerstone of the entire conflict, that terrible rivalry between Ferdinand and Frederick, between Habsburg and Wittelsbach, and arguably between Catholic and Calvinist. Having mobilised what few friends and resources he could find, Frederick was effectively spent by 1623, and he was mostly out of options. Emperor Ferdinand, on the other hand, was only just getting started. Having instituted the changes he had desired, it remained to secure these changes for good, and build upon them wherever possible. Frederick's loud and expected protests at Maximilian's promotion washed off the imperial chancery, as the emperor's most important ally was tethered to him for better or for worse. This ally, Maximilian of Bavaria, now the elector of Bavaria, was certainly happy to cooperate with his emperor's strategy, because he, like Ferdinand, had now gone too far to step back from the precipice. Anything less than total victory would deprive him of his newly gotten gains and scandalise the emperor in return. This coalition of the emperor, the elector of Bavaria and the king of Spain was so powerful that it seemed no other state could combat it and that Frederick could not possibly stand for long. Soon enough, Frederick would not have to stand alone as the fearful coalition pushed too far, too hard, too many times. In the next episode, we're going to change our focus somewhat and take up a story that's been in the background for a little while at this point, the Spanish-Dutch War and the Twelve Years' Truce. These issues, along in the background, are now going to be drawn to the forefront, and in the next few episodes we plan on properly addressing them, so I hope you'll join me for that as we take a little break from Frederick and Friends, and look instead at the Dutch and friends. Until then though guys, my name is Zach, and this has been episode 24 of the 30 Years War. Thanks so much for listening and supporting this show, it means so much to me. Mask up, stay safe, and I'll be seeing you all soon.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.